podcast listeners. If you hear my voice right now, I need you to do something for me. I want you to take out your phone or on your computer, go to Apple Podcasts, search for Ask Your Old Head Podcast. You'll see my, my logo, my little picture, my little image there. Find the show. Please rate and write a review. It's a small thing, but it helps others find this work and find what I'm doing here. And it really, really matters, uh, as small as that may seem. So if you could please do that uh, before we get into the show, I very much appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Peace. Peace. This is the Good Brothers. I'm Justice Raji. I'm here with I'm Justice, and uh, we just gonna get into it. So, one thing I did want to have us do, and keeping in with the energy of the, of the Ash Old Head podcast and the world of Ash Old Head, is start with a moment of reverence, man. Anybody you want to get some love and respect and shout out to before we get to add on? Oh, uh, man, uh, interesting. So. Yeah, I, I take two people. One, I take um, my aunt, my aunt, um, D.V. Lane, and she she returned to the essence, as we as we say, um, about two months ago um, down in North Carolina, um, a special aunt to me, you know, so definitely want to uh, put her life out into the atmosphere, someone that always worked for the people in a variety of ways. Um, put family first. Uh, we actually seen her when we was down um, in Durham when we did the um, presentation. Mm-hmm. My, aunt that, mm-hmm. my aunt that came out with us. Yeah, so. And, uh, and then also, um, a brother who was around my life for a long time, one of the one of the good brothers, uh, Brother Hishimu Jaramoji. Um, he was a journalist, uh, writer, news reporter for over 40 years in Philadelphia um, and mentored many of the journalists from across the country around black journalism, uh, was doing independent news in the 80s, um, continue to do independent news. And one of the things that you don't, one of the things that has transitioned is the idea of black journalism and independent black journalism in particular has now shifted to the internet. Mm So as a result, you don't see the kind of traditional mediums and media of independent black journalism as you once did, which I think is a, which is a, is an opening because there are still a lot of people who receive their information via print. Maybe not uh, clearly not as many as who did, and clearly it will continue to dwindle as a as a medium. But there are still a lot of people in our community who receive information that way. And he has been dedicated, <clears throat> was always dedicated to making sure that our people uh, were able to get information from an unvarnished and independent perspective. Even if he worked with elected officials and he worked with Democrats, Republicans, national, local, he was always very clear about his perspective. And he only could work with people who he felt were doing things for the benefit of the black community. So I had been really thinking about black journalism recently um and he was one of the people that personify what that means so i want to give him a shout out all right peace uh man uh, i asked the question I, I had a couple different things i got one that's probably too close to the vest for them i'd rather wait maybe till next week to share about but i would want to give um 
actually um no love love and respect to uh <laughs> my 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 queen Myers uh father Fred Williams his birthday is a couple days after mine and um we just closed on a house together um but you know Fred's a neurosurgeon retired finally and um we the closing day of doing documents um you know he put a little pressure to the to the to the signing people about you know what protocol that they have in place to protect all of us as we go in to try to sign these documents you know what i'm saying dealing with the covid and the, and the contamination possibilities and what have you it was a little shocking however it all worked out but the, the bigger thing was he was you know very adamant about them taking proper precautions and and being mindful of people's well-being you know not just their own protection, but also of whoever's coming in before, after us. Um, and, you know, and also, you, you know, I appreciate him. I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a rip roaring journey and adventure being family with people. So, shout to Fred. Um, so, we're going to just get into it. So, you know, the first piece I had on the docket, on the, on the ledger here, was. Um, in the GRIO and a couple other places, uh, there was a study came out about your impact on the mental health and the image of black men, improve black men's mental health and sort of self-image, you know, in, 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 in time with the Obama election. And that there's a study, I got at least the link to the GRIO piece I'll put on the notes when I post this. Um, I read that and then did, read a subsequent article that reported on it and tried to get some time to read the whole piece. But I wanted to get your input and thought on, can you reflect on that time or have any thoughts just about the impact of Obama's election on the way, you know, black men, you know, see themselves, saw themselves, you know, in the present or in the past? Yeah, yeah, man. Um, this is a, this is a, a topic that me, me and my pop often banter about, um, we're on the opposite sides of the perspective on this one. He is settling to his space as an old black man, which, you know, usually comes with saying whatever he thinks. <laughs> and that's like, that's okay. Cause he's retired. They can't take his money. And even having to not tell him what he thought for so long. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that I think me and him do agree on around this is that <laughs> whatever your perspective of the policy and the the political and the policy um, kind of accomplishments of the Obama administration, and that's a you know that, that's a day in itself, right? Um, what they inherited, what they could do, what were their constraints, what were the parameters of that time, right? There's just a lot around that, right? So I acknowledge that. But one of the most important things I, I said then and will say to this day was the symbolic psychological importance of the idea of um, a black man being president and a black couple being in the White House. Now, where me and my father disagree is he and a number of other people, as I talk to him, kind of feel that him not being, quote unquote, the, the children of slaves mm-hmm. made him a lot actually easier to deal with from white people versus Michelle Obama. And so it's always been a really interesting vantage point that he and, like I said, some other people have shared with me um, around that. 
to my answer is if you had somebody whose name was James Thompson and they were from the South side of Chicago, but they went to Harvard, they went to uh, Columbia, Harvard, and then taught at university of Chicago, they'd probably be some some somewhat similar. They wouldn't be too much different, right? Like, you know, they, you know, all that job talking and shit, like, they're not going to be doing all of that, right? So, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, I just, just don't think that that would have been the case. And I do think having read a number of books around Barack Obama's time in Chicago, that a lot of how he did what he did had a lot more to do with Chicago and the politics of Chicago and the politics of the Midwest than it did uh, his um, parental upbringing and where his father hailed from. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think Chicago in itself had a lot to do and being able to come up in that space and the ability to make friends, build relationships with people of all different backgrounds and kinds, knowing that he had a target made him somebody who was who was very specific about how he framed himself, how he built relationships and, and so on. So I say all that to say, I think, yes, it had a huge impact on the sense of self, right? Like, you know, we talk about knowledge of self. A knowledge of oneself is often predicated on a sense of oneself, you know? And if, you, and if your sense of self is minimized, you know, or as, we tell, as I tell people, you, you, it's very difficult to be what you can't see, yeah. right? Indeed, indeed. And I think, um, so one of my, my thoughts, especially when I read the piece, it was sort of a... Well, of course, right? Like, I mean, it, it, it's the, you know, I, I, I started this year in, in mapping out things I really wanted to talk about was in, in the, the interplay between self-esteem and self-efficacy is, is, my, is my theme of the year, right? And the, you know, the perception, the, the standing reality that, you know, nothing about Barack Obama unless you just really don't like light-skinned dudes. If you look at him, you like, he's black. He looks like me, right? So for whatever part of your own framing of the world where you're like, if you leave, you know, don't feel or your experiences have shaped you in some way, at some point you look and go, well, that dude sort of looks like me. His name is Barack. That's, that sounds very, uh, you know, African-American or definitely not standard <laughs> right standard issue <laughs> names so to speak um so in terms of your cognitive experience of that at some point you, you're gonna have some you know at least minor reaction that goes okay well i mean he is president okay i mean like you know the rest of your life might have all these other issues and dynamics but that piece you know it removes the seal so to speak that that is not a possible outcome or that it didn't it never happened Right. Um, you know, now whether whether or not, you know, is it a cure all, is it a end all to all pain and frustration and suffering? No, but it is something to the like seeing people be effective, you know, from that level, the Brock and and, and, and Michelle Obama level down to, you know, experiencing that maybe in in, in having, you know, a, a patriarch, matriarch in your family, you know, as a couple that has been able to, you know, be a shepherd or guide kind of to the rest of your family or whatever it may be, you know, it does impact your perception of 
of what well-being could be, I think, right? You know, at, at some level, it may not. Uh, so I'm not necessarily surprised by the idea that 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 you know, you know, based you know, based on the assessment tool that was used and the screening methodology and all that. You know, people, I'm I'm not here to get into that today. <laughs> um, but the idea that is there a net positive for you as a black person, but you as a black man, seeing the black man. In, in 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 that type of role in the world, and I would say the answer is yes. Now, you know, getting into the nature of his politics and what he did well, didn't do well. Um, I've never actually been a big adherent to the idea that um, that the day to day operation of of white folks within the dynamics of white supremacy that they actually have that sophisticated a, a processing to differentiate between what type of black person <laughs> you may be. I think the, the, the educational mm. class pieces are probably more prominent in, in that, oh, well, when he started talking, he sounds like somebody that I met at, you know, name the space that I went into. Oh, I, I, uh, oh yeah, and, fill, in, fill in the blank. Uh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I, th- I think that part to me is probably more weighty than them knowing his origin story, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, as me and my uh, uh, genios talk all the time, pop to him and the family. Um, if people that have read, uh, you know, what's the name, the sins of the rest of my father, or so, you know, the, the book he wrote before he got famous, is <laughs> like he may not have made it <laughs> if they read that first, <laughs> but they read that after he right. got famous. You know what I'm saying? And then it was like, oh well. So then, then you, so then you, you already like him, you know, after the sentence, the the speech at the convention, you know, with Carrie. But then you go back and read his book, and you're like, you can whatever in there may have scared you off. You can go well. He seemed so well spoken, and and I liked what he was talking about, right? Where if the is the reverse, you know what I'm saying? You'd be like, wait a minute, this dude is he's not a he's a little bit critical of our situation here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He, he he's not as uh, uh, cut and dry, enthusiastic, so to speak. Um, but I think it's uh, you know the the way we perceive ourselves because um, I think there's I think we still wrestle with. And I see it in my day-to-day work. I see it in organizing work and with like, what is the, what set of public presentations of black men are the ones that people feel comfortable like comparing people to. And I think the Mm. circumstance changes depending on, you know, your place and space. In my world, we're doing direct service work with youth and young men and women of color and other folks, so it's a lot of time crime and, you know, you know, we're involved with the criminal justice system. And you get folks who feel that some of those standards are unfair for kids who have had certain experiences to be like, yeah, you could be like this dude, right? And I think I understand the heart of that, um, but I also am not totally comfortable with being like, yeah, you don't need to look at that and think anything positive about it or think that that's in the cart. Like, I, I, I also worry about the kind of like, you could just be however you are currently and everybody should just work out working with you. And I'm like, uh-huh. maybe. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, so uh, a couple of things about that. And I think thank you for that, that insight and kind of bringing up a couple of those points. Again, representation, we see the blessing and the limitation of representation, right? The blessing of representation is you see yourself reflected in a space of power. And I'll get back to that. 
the limitation of it is it's just that it's a representation. Like it's not the thing, right? right? It is almost like a picture of the thing. It's not the thing. And so it's only when you match the picture of the thing with the thing that you start to get the fullness of representation, right? And when it really becomes who you can be. So there is a benefit, right? You figure I have a 10 year old who does not know any other, I mean, he only knows two presidents, Mm -hmm. right? So by the time I was 10, I knew Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, just to put it in context, right? That reinforced every day. And then all their leadership reinforced every day that nobody that looked like me was in control of the country. Now, I'll take it back and say, when I saw Wilson Good win, um, win the election for mayor of Philadelphia in 83, that was something that was important because it was representation, but it also was representation plus the actual thing because I saw th- there were a group of people who were supporting Wilson Good who were about building power for Black people. Mm-hmm. And so that, that therein lies, I think, part of this issue which I think people who criticize Obama or criticize representation, I think they're right in that it's necessary, but not sufficient. But I think we have to do the work of making it real to people by having the substance behind the picture. Mm -hmm. And then I think that is the broader challenge of black politics. Like, and, and, and then what is the arc of what you're expecting? Because that's the other part with Obama, and I want to touch on that briefly. The other part, like, what do you expect to change? This literally, this country was literally based upon taking advantage of people, white supremacy, capital, capitalism, imperialism, sexism, right? I mean, literally. The first guy that gets in there in the time of a, of, of a recession, right? Right. Like, and again, going back to my point about Chicago, he had to come up through the ranks of Chicago where there is a strong history of black politics, probably the city in America with the strongest history of black politics. However, by the time he had gotten there, his ability to navigate black Chicago and white Chicago, it was only, it was a unique person that could do it. So I just wanted to touch upon representation versus the substance of power, which I think is a, which I've been just reading and studying is a broader issue we just have right now. Like we can, sometimes we confuse the perception of power or the look of power for actual power. The second thing I want to say on that is your point around what people saw, regardless of race, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama were in the, Probably, probably, literally, five percent. Pardon the pun. Of <laughs> all educated folks and their experiences in America, again, Princeton and Columbia, Harvard Law School, interning at the top law, um, law clerks' offices in Chicago, right? Like so. They came uh, to pass at a time where the crest of, of just America, they looked like America. They looked like people's friends at the law firm. They looked like people's friends at 
the engineering firm. They looked like people's friends. They spoke and looked like what people could relate to, which I think is the flip side of also why Donald Trump won, which is why you got to be careful around his idea of relatability. Because it was a different form of relatability. And, And none of us could imagine why he could win, but he could win for the same reason that Barack Obama could win because it was about relatability and people being able to see themselves and somebody else. So I just wanted to touch on that, but I think we, we can forget that or we can, we can utilize it for the benefit of saying, Oh, look at what Barack and Michelle did, but not remember that. Like, again, when white folks wanted to see the last real white man, they, so they saw it in Donald Trump. Right. right? And they could relate to that. And frankly, if we're being honest, some black and Brown men, particularly also, saw what they what they thought as a return to normalcy in a very self-flagellating and self-defeatist way yeah absolutely i think um and i I think that though you know that that last point you landed on brings speaks to something around i mean generally and what i appreciated about the article and, and and even the content the concept is is the public discussion about men's health and men's perception of their self image and i think that you know, you know, as, as I've stated, I think I said, I may have reported saying it. I know I said it in my episode that I talk about myself. You know, I've, I follow a lot of social media of people who, it at least appears, are targeting black men, right? As a part of my thing of trying to stay in tune with what, what, what's the conversation. And, um, and not that I just needed that to tell me, but I've known for a while the specific kind of cultural being of the black man that finds identity in going counter to whatever is looks like maybe a lot of people think is the thing, right? So they find identity in being like, well, I'm going to go talk to Donald Trump. I'm going to go talk to Donald because, you know, we need stuff. So I'm going to go talk to him. Right. Now you could have just said he's the president, so I'm gonna go see what I can get. I'd have took that, but you ain't gotta tell me this whole other cockamamie stuff about you know you, you got these values around opportunity and I ain't gonna let the Democrats or the liberals or this other take advantage of us. I'm like, come on, man. That's 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 just say you're gonna go talk whoever the president was, if you had a meet with the president, you gotta think, well, is this a good meeting? Is this a meeting I should take? But just but just I here's what I'm here's what I'm saying. I think you I mean you're right. I think, though, because of the spaces we may find ourselves in, we're, we minimize that there are a there's a subset and subgroup of people who, through the transactions of the past, see what you're talking about is the transaction of the present. He's the president, so I'm going to talk to him. I don't give a damn what his perspective is, right? I'm not going to give him no secret hand, the secret black handshake like I might have did with Obama. I'm going to negotiate for my terms, right? Right, right, right. But there's so many black men who were from a time or from a generational perspective of, I mean, you could call it Republican because that's essentially what it was at that time, especially when the Dixiecrats went left. But they were from a time where it was like, I'm going to be the brother who's not like the other brothers. Mm-hmm. Like, to your point, like, I'm going to be the brother who stands for what everybody else don't stand for. And that has become their principles, which 
really I look at it as also how the success of how the Republican Party took over the 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 conversation in America, because then everyone had to start talking about access and opportunity, which is really fundamentally where the Democrat I mean the Republicans have gone. But no, I just think you're right, but I think there's some mugs, man, who their self-image and their self-efficacy is really based and grounded on some of that stuff. Like me being the person that can go talk to the white man. You know what I mean? Right. And and I mean, it's not healthy. It's not it's not healthy for us as a as a community because again, and I, I'm probably here, I'm here a lot, but it's based on us not having a shared vision of what's important to us. Us not having a shared vision of the methodologies, even if we take divergent methodologies, knowing that all the methodologies are being used to advance our causes. Mm-hmm. And so when we don't have those, every individual may even think they're acting on behalf of us, right? Like some of the, like Michael Steele, right? You know, Michael Steele, the, he used to be the, um, you know, he got to start with Marion Barry. Like he used to work for Marion Barry. Like he has a really, when you listen to him, he has an extremely interesting story. He just ended up in a Republican party because of how he, what he thought about the ideas of conservative ideas, which not a small number of our community, quote unquote, thinks they have, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I just think because we don't have a shared vision of what that looks like, individuals based on the time have access. And it, it, it actually wrecks havoc, I'm gonna argue, on those who don't have access to those role models in their families to level set. Because in some ways, even your fine hustlers, their whole premise is I had to get it myself. I had to get it out the mud, right? Yeah. I ain't waiting for nobody to give me nothing. Which then when you start translating that to a political context, you sound like a conservative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're not talking about no safety. You're not talking about no safety net, right? You're not talking about doing for the people. Right. You said I had to get it out the mud. Right. So I'm hustling. Why aren't you? Right. You should do what I'm doing. Pull you should do out. even if it's illegal. Right. Even if it's illegal, right? Right, right, right. You, you, you hungry? You hungry? Get out here. Ain't nobody gonna feed you. You hungry? Get out here. Hustle. Well, shit. You take that. That sound like Thomas Sewell. Like, like <laughs> if you if you put it in a book. Right, right, right. And, I, and that's why I think it though. And I, I guess I, I, I feel like challenged at times that we don't. Because even with this, you know, current situation we got going on with the with the with the, with the, with the, with the uh, global pandemic, where you know. It was all funny games for folks until their favorite uh, rapper got, you know, I mean, popped up with it, and this, and then they're like, "Oh, like you mean regular people that I like could get? Yeah, it's a disease, bro. It's it's, it's a virus. <laughs> it ain't. They don't give no damn about your your, your particular, uh, you know, social political viewpoint on the world or whether or not your bootstraps is tight. Um, but then the the other piece of like folks, how you frame external information, how you frame what other people are actually doing with their time. And I know, you know, as, as I used to, my mother used to say, you know, I used to be scared you was a Republican. Because, you know, I, you know, you know, there's a lot of certain stuff where I'm like, hey, man, like, I'm going to help you. However, you know what I mean? You got to, I'm going to help you with this first pot of lentils. On the second pot, we're going to need a plan. 
you have your own lentils because I can't you give do, giving you my lentils. And you just and you had that streak. I'm gonna tell you that because I love you. You do have that streak, just just so yeah, you know. Yeah, straight up. I, <laughs> Although I, for me, these are not incompatible philosophies of life. You know what I'm saying? I like sharing people, and I and I give you the shirt off my back, or at least we can split my two dollars in, so we could both have a soda pop. However, also. At some point, you got to get your own soda pop. It's not sustainable for me to keep splitting mine. You know what I'm saying? That way we change the system and the parameters so that we can all have a, a more fair circumstance to, to, to achieve soda pop access. Um, you know, but also, you know, if something's not working out, you know, I, I'm knowledge-based. I feel like there must be a way we can figure out how we can achieve the outcome we want, you know, with you know, within limits, you know, I want I want my kids to get the most robust, you know, Black history ever in school. You know, that may or may not happen depending on where you live in America. You might not be able to get that in in a in a rural. Right. You might have to go. Shit, you can't get it. You can't get it in most major American cities. You know what I'm saying, so I'm saying, you, know, you might need to do something at home. Right. You might have to take that on yourself. Not meaning you can't tell the school district they should do better. Right. Or private. You know what I'm saying? But you just may also get to go, all right, kids, we're going to make sure we set aside time. So, I, you know, uh, it, you know, image, though, is such a, a, I mean, one, obviously, self-image is incredibly personal because it's your own image and how you see yourself. Um, you know, and I think the, the relative boost of any external stimuli, I think, is, on, is always going to be limited to then what, what do you have from your own internal experience next to that. Um, you know, so where I can see where, and I'm, I better learn more about Michael Steele. I can see where certain brothers, black men would find themselves in, in various strains of political philosophy. And I actually don't think that that's problematic. I think that the, 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 the problem may show up when a part of that framing of whatever your philosophy, whether that's more liberal or more, more conservative. If your framing is that the other person got to their perspective due to some sort of like deviance or um, not deviance, deviance is not the word, uh, some diminished capacity about their mind and brain took them to these their points, not actually right. following actually maybe the way they they were able to do what they needed to do in their learning, um, you know, because there there is a a knowledge path that took them to this is the philosophy that reinforces how I see and operate. And I think if we, I think when you embrace that, then I can say, I can reach across whatever my political position is and say, what collectively do we want to achieve that we may have in common? Even if we don't agree on some of these other concepts over here, you know, we still won't be vested in, I don't know, home ownership or uh, good schools. <laughs> I don't know. Right, right, right. No, I think I think to your you, to your point, uh, and, and I mean, you've actually just opened up another portal, which I, I'm not going to try to go too too deep down. Okay. But there is something when ninety percent of a particular ethnicity all belongs to one political party. Mm-hmm. That is not me wanting people to be Republican. It means that. What, that means one group turned its back and became, from a philosophical perspective, to a value, from a philosophical perspective, to a values and 
interest base that no longer allowed black people to be a part of that tent. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference, right? There's a difference between saying, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, which theoretically, I mean, we can't forget, came from a black person saying that. Yeah. I mean, what popularized it in our acknowledgement of it is not white people, it's a black man, mm-hmm. right? The Atlanta Compromise and Booker T. Washington stuff was not, I mean, that was a black man who was seen as a black man. Now, even then we had the philosophical debates, right? Mm-hmm. But no one said he wasn't black. Right. Absolutely. And the institution he created is still acting on behalf of black people. Yep. So the fact that we can't have that kind of dialogue anymore is very challenging. And so what happens is you are framed as a Democrat based on the imaging, not necessarily based on the perspective, not even the political or values-based perspective. Because again, like, why are you a Democrat? Because your mama was a Democrat. Why are you a Democrat? Because your daddy was a Democrat. Why was he a Democrat? It usually goes back to some person, right? It usually goes back to Martin Luther King. <laughs> it usually goes back to a, a black mayor, Jesse Jackson running in 84, right, in 88. Right, it goes back to a thing of an image that frames for you your political vantage point. Right, like I'm in a I'm in a situation where I am a Democrat. <laughs> I vote as a Democrat. I am part of the Democratic Party. That is also because I am I work in the administration as someone who is a Democrat. Right. And, and is part of that party. And he sometimes has challenges with people in the party, because right now we're at a place where if you're not supporting where Bernie coming from, then you might as well be Trump. There are literally there are literally people who will yeah. say Biden and Trump are the same person. And no matter what I think of Biden's political history, yeah, he ain't Trump. I am smart enough. No, he is not the same person. <laughs> As the person that said, you should show appreciation for me, or I'm not going to call you when your state is going through a global pandemic. Right. Like, imagine, um, yo, imagine you allowing me to die because I'm not showing you enough appreciation. I mean, that's just so, but anyway, but, but no, I think you bring up a really good point about self imagery, self efficacy. And then how does the, the idea of the self connect to the collective where you are propagating ideas? Because again, to your point, industriousness, uplift, who would say they don't support those things, but also a strong safety net, who would say they don't support those things? So to your point, both of those things can exist in the same place. It's only because we're in this weird thing where 90% of Black folks are in the Democratic Party, and the Republican Party is now 75% white. So the Republican Party has now almost become a proxy for whiteness. Yeah. Yeah. So the Republican Party is a proxy for whiteness and a proxy for wealth, then it becomes much more difficult to have any nuanced conversation about policy and values. Barack Obama, and I think they continue to in a very interesting way, Barack and Michelle Obama, because I, I, you know, I don't think you can really downplay her importance. Um, I think we talked about this idea that that um, a young woman 
who was born on the south side of Chicago, whose father was a ward leader in the Daily <laughs> Machine, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people like to leave out because it's like Daily was Daily was the devil to them, right? But also, there's some black folks who benefited from the Daily Machine. There's a whole lot of them. There's a whole lot of black folks who benefited from his iron-fisted rule to be able to achieve such heights while still, quote-unquote, going back to this idea of self-imaging, self-efficacy, while still being herself. And the last thing I'll say, Jess, on this, I know because we, we, I mean, but this is just a really, it, it, it really has some deeper kind of inferences, is to your point around people saying, well, everybody ain't got to look like Barack Obama. You're right. The difference is with a system of white supremacy, the person that, the white person who doesn't have to look like the the mayor or the president still receives the benefits of the system. So they still get all the benefits of whiteness, right? So no, they don't have to look like anybody. And I'm not affirming that anyone has to look like anybody because I think folks have done a really good job of being themselves. But I do think that's a reason why you have to have a different dialogue around perception and a different dialogue around allowing people to be them. But that means you got to create systems that allow them to flourish while being them. That means they have to learn about financial, uh, take advantage of the tax system so they can be them and run their, their art gallery or they can run their plumbing business being them mm-hmm. right they need access to the halls of power and halls of resources so they can they can be just who they want to be and take advantage of systems so therefore we don't have to have a conversation where in order to win you got to put a suit on you know what i mean like because that's because people even i even had that dialogue with people they're like, man, I used to see you, man, and you used to, you know what I'm saying, be out here, man, with the kids and with the people, man. Now I see you, woo, you're doing your thing, brother, which is always fake, right? That's always fake. Anytime, anytime <laughs> black men become over, over exaggerated. You mean yeah. you don't really think you're doing your thing? Yeah, he really does not like the fact I'm doing my thing. Either he doesn't think I'm doing my thing, or he doesn't like the fact I'm doing my thing. Uh, women often say about saying, "I see your little job. <laughs> I see you got your. I see you got, see you got your little mansion." <laughs> Men. <laughs> see, you got your little mansion, your little raise. Men, men go. Woo, you doing your? Thing. I see you, man. You out here. AKA, AKA. I hate the fact that you're doing what you're doing. Right. I but really like. For I me, like that you're doing that. I don't really like that you're doing that, but I can't say that to you because it's not appropriate in society to say that. But what I learned from that was, for me, it was, okay, to your point, we have to change systems, but fundamentally, you got to see the world as it is. And for me, in order to make the change I wanted to make and I want to make for the people who I care about, I had to be in those spaces, engaging those spaces in a different way than I was when I couldn't get to the decision makers to your point about getting dressed up right right i used to go to work in dicky suits and jeans and tims every day 
I just couldn't get to the power makers. If, if it was a system where I could get to them and get all the money I needed and be able to make sure kids ate in a global pandemic, then I'd still wear it. You know, so it, it, it's, it's, again, it's a, where is our individual and collective underpinning of what the goal is around culture, power, and equality, which I think is the, is the crux of the issue. Uh, oh, and a, and a pivot. <laughs> uh, so second piece, I, I shared with you an article um, by Spencer Hall, who's a writer um, who I became familiar with through actually Bomani Jones' old, old radio show because he was a regular guest on there and he wrote a piece that I have a link to. Um, and it was really, you know, a lot of good basic things about working from home. So it's a lot of people doing that week this week. And um, But there was a closing piece and I'll just read the, uh, the this paragraph and then we could add on about it. In summary, you are now both the bear and the park ranger. The problem and the solution. That's you at home now. Be kind to the park ranger by understanding what you need in the day and what rules you need to follow to keep the park in order. Be kind to the bear by understanding that rules apply to an animal to take into account the needs and limitations of the bear. And, um, and I thought about that, the implications of that in the way that you run your life because I think the underlying sort of fear probably have pressed to the line of most entities, whether they're large corporations to a nonprofit, is that if you really leave people to their own devices, they are not really going to do the stuff we intended them to do. So therefore, <laughs> even if you're in a, a role that requires you to be outside talking to people, 70% of the time, we still need you to be in the office so we can see you, you know, for five hours a day so somebody can feel comfortable that you're doing stuff, you know. Um, I think there's an old, uh, I wish I could find it now, about productivity and sort of just all the, uh, I bet you, I think, uh, it might actually be in one of Gladwell's books, just about like how unproductive people are at their jobs, even though they're there. Like they're actually only like there's only like a smaller amount of the time they're in the building that is actually getting their work done. And not that it's not enough. It's just a reality that seeing people is sometimes not as effective as it can appear. Um, all, you know. So tuning into the idea of being, you know, in life, being your own bear and the park ranger. How does that, uh, do you have any thoughts based on, you know, kind of thinking about that concept uh, as I shared it with you? Oh, man. <laughs> the problem and the solution. Self-savior. Mathematics never tell no lies. People do. So <laughs> I think there's a couple of things around that. There, there, there is, to your point, in our earlier dialogue, there is a broader kind of, there's an individual conversation around that point, and then there's a work conversation. Mm, mm -hmm. We still judge the premise of effectiveness and efficiency based on a um, assembly line model. Now, I think that's being challenged a little bit by 
the new workers who have entered the system, millennials and Generation Z folks, who just have come up in a fundamentally different world and don't judge their effectiveness in the same way, right? They see the world differently and they have come into the workforce in a different way. But we still judge it to say, do I see you doing your work? Right, right. And it's usually because we have been framed for people. What does success look like? We've done it in the job interview or in the, um, the, the job posting where you post all these things, these ideas that you want people to do that change as soon as they get to the job, right? Like it's not real. Right, it's right. a joke. And then you get them in there, you interview them. They have learned to say all the things to make you give them the job because they need the money. Right. right. So the premise of it is like, okay, what do you think about this? Whatever you want me to think, boss. <laughs> what do you think about this? All the practice lines that you, that other people have told me you would like to hear. All right. I've been waiting for you to ask me that question. So I'm yeah, I, that I've had in my hand, in my pocket the whole week. I got some coaching. Yeah, I thought you never asked me that. I thought you never asked me that question. So how often are you able to work? Whatever you need me to do. It's very important that I'm here. Whenever you need me, Whew, that's going to, it's going to be a great addition to the team. <laughs> And then that person gets there. They've been lying to themselves. They've been lying to you and you've been lying to yourself. Yeah. And then they get there and don't do anything they act like they were going to do. Or as soon as they get their first check, because they were acting out a sense of pressure. Mm-hmm. They don't do what you've been asking them to do. And here's the other, actually, I think more important thing than even the assembly line model of management, which the only people who has been able to get out of that kind of is tech. Because they're, the, I would argue, they're some of the only ones not operating on a scarcity model. Because even most law offices still go by hours billed. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So the only folks who've gotten into, like, I just care what you give me at the end of two weeks, it's like tech folks. So you can have all the green juices you want. Right. Show up. Just stay here product. for two. Just show up with the product, which is also challenging because their thing is you can have all the green juices. Just sh- you, if you got to work 24 hours next week, 24 hours next <laughs> tomorrow, right. who cares? <laughs> right? Which is also challenging, but in yeah, a different way. Problems with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or, so if you don't stay here and, you know, I was listening actually to a tech podcast I listen to regularly and they were like, you know, it's something that, well, no, it actually was an article about like, if your company's paying for lunch, paying for breakfast, paying for dinner, paying for snacks, paying, like there's a there's economy that could be being shared with the area you're in by your staff going out, you know, and doing business with regular people, not getting it all from you, right? So you're like you're paying people an exorbitant rate, and then you're also kind of the thing that could make them getting paid that much at least helpful to somebody else. You're just kind of taking from the community. Because oh, listen, it's a company town. It's a high-paid company town. Yeah, like when, yeah, when you go to Google, right, when, when, when I go to the Google location here, which they're great partners, thanks, Google, for all that you do, especially right now in a global pandemic. <laughs> if you need the bots are listening, let you I know. Still want that, I still want that gigabyte internet, but I'm not saying that. I'm just saying. <laughs> let you know. I'm brother out, man, with some competition out here, man. The Baduto administration appreciates you. Um <laughs> But like, it's a it's a gilded jail. Like, it, it, I don't want to say it is. It could be perceived as a gilded jail because everything's in here, so you don't go outside. Mm-hmm. So every like, you know what I mean? Like, so the funny story that I tell people is like going to Bloomberg 
for some of the work they do on public service stuff and, and government. And they have been, they were really helpful, really good perspectives. Um, really, really fans of Bloomberg government and Bloomberg philanthropies in the context of what they like to do around cities and cities sharing best practices. But what was interesting about being in Bloomberg was they would take us to the 30th floor, the, one of the best views in New York you've ever seen. They would bring in food from like Momofuku, like they would bring in food from all the ill, all the Ill restaurants right, right, right. in New York. Feed you till you couldn't eat no more. As snacks, they give you a hundred calorie snacks, just like Mike Bloomberg eats in order to keep energy up for the next hour. Like it was like total, but you couldn't optimization. Go the doors, but you couldn't it was leave. optimization. You couldn't leave. <laughs> so one time I was like, "So I'm gonna go out and get some bri- some uh, some uh, air," and they was like, "No, you can't go outside." I was like, "What?" They said, like, "No, you can't go outside. You could look out the windows." I can't go downstairs and like, but you can't go downstairs at all. Like you don't even have the pass to get off of the floor you're on to go downstairs. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Now their <laughs> argument is their business is information. Yeah. So just in case after they studied you and said that you could actually come there, <laughs> if they found out that you might be trying a person that can steal information, right. they have to protect themselves. But it felt like a gilded jail. Like it was like, this is great, but I can't go outside and go get a newspaper. Right. And so, in the same way, the tech stuff is like optimization via your resources. Now, the rest of jobs, like the opposite, there's nothing in here. We're pressuring you. Right. So then people be like, okay, I'm going to lunch. And lunch turns into two hours, but it wasn't that two hour lunch. <laughs> or here's a meeting to lunch. The meeting was a half an hour. Lunch is an hour and a half, almost two hours. Right? And so you don't have any of that, but it goes back to the point of, you know when you do good work? When you want to be at a job. Yeah. yeah. Like that's when you do good work. If you don't want to be at a job, you won't perform. If a job is just for you to get a check, you won't perform. If a job is, if there's a deeper relationship or deeper connection to either your efficiency of getting the job done or sometimes the salary or sometimes the purpose, you will actually overperform. And I just think that's what we forget sometimes. And so like with this idea of effectiveness and then as it connects to being at home, well, guess what? If you don't want to do your job, you're going to be at home doing all the stuff I told you about earlier. Right. <laughs> Being on meetings, getting off meetings, doing all kind of other stuff, right? Yeah, and I think because you, like, well, I because I, I, I've tried to. One thing I've tried to, especially in the last, I would say the last 10 years of my work life, is be very clear about why, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And even if the peering into the, the what I'm doing is going to make me uncomfortable, I go, hmm, I need, I need to embrace that discomfort of like, I might not really like it here anymore. Or this is not going well. 
um because i've been there in the past in my and i, I guess i would say I, I started to apply the rules i applied in my personal life and how i manage myself to you know how i you know look to employment and, and and civic you know engagement and work and that if something is not going well and i don't really want to be doing it no more i need to figure out a way to, to transition out of that um right and also though that when stuff doesn't get done that i'm supposed to do there's a myriad of reasons, some of them noble <laughs> and, and great, and like, well, you know, my son, and I had to do this with my, my daughter, and, and my, my she wasn't feeling it, she had vertigo, and I had, and sometimes I got really into this um, space game I got. <laughs> I started at seven, and I didn't realize how dope it was. Next thing I knew, it was 12.30. Now, I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> But you know, if you if if, if there ain't a person that's played a video game they like in the world that ain't never said, man, I started at seven thirty and I thought I was the next. Now it's one. Hmm. Maybe I need to go take a shower. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or you know, among the things that people could get into that would take them off the path of what maybe they're supposed to be doing, right? You know, that you, you know, me and knowledge was having a conversation. And I talk a lot of times sometimes about managing urges. Because that's, to me, that's the framework that I like to keep in my head that we have urges to do stuff. And those urges are not good or bad. They're just, they're, sometimes they could be bad, but not necessarily. So, like, you're hungry, you start thinking, man, make a smoothie, I'll get a, make a salad, I'll cook some of this, or I'll eat them leftover uh, tofu, uh, what's the name, double wings I had, or, you know what I mean, I'm going to eat these corn burgers, or whatever, yeah, whatever it is, right. you know what I'm saying, or you, if you, you're sleepy, you're like, man, I really want to take a nap, you know, you're looking for some quality time, you're like, man, where's where's the person I like at, <laughs> quality time, <laughs> whatever it may be, that may take you away from some other stuff that you may be responsible for. You know, you know, and those are all more things that I hope are more healthy. We know other things like addiction and, you know, compulsion and other things can take us into whole other chambers. Right. So knowing that, you know, being your own park ranger and your bear, you got to like manage like, man, you know what? I don't do meetings well after three o'clock. If you come understand that you're a person that does not do well in a meeting that's after three o'clock, Stop scheduling meetings after three o'clock. Tell people when they ask, are you available at four? No, I am not. Can we do this meeting at two? Because <laughs> at four, I'm going to be hot trash. I'm going to be just trying to end the meeting. I mean, I'm going to come in with like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Fantastic. That sounds like a great idea. Like, what do you think? Sounds like a great idea. Because you look at, you looking at the watch like, man, it's four o'clock. It's all downhill for here for me mentally. You know, right? but, you know so hold it. There's two things about that, Just, and, uh, and, and you're okay. right. One of the things is we don't use behavioral science around optimizing work, right? And because we don't use behavioral science around optimizing work, we don't know when people are most effective. We just assume everyone's the same, right? And to your point, nothing good, nothing good happens after four o'clock in meetings, right? <laughs> like nothing. You know what I mean? Like there's just nothing positive that that occurs. However, we keep trying to schedule. People want to schedule meetings at that time. So the behavioral science of that, you're right. And the second part of this, how much do you know yourself? 
to acknowledge when you're effective and communicate that as part of your effectiveness process and your efficacy process. Right. You know what I mean? And I've tried, I've tried, I I continue to try different ways to highlight that when I'm in different places I show up and go like, all right, man, are you, are you sure you want to be after five all the time? I mean, I'm cool. If we go, this is what we say we're going to do. I'm going to do it. But are we sure this is the best thing to do? Are we positive that we will get the most effective outcome with this particular piece? You know, on the other, on the flip side, you know, there's some things having an early, early, like an early, early meeting, like a 7 a.m. That sometimes, especially at least for me, like interpersonal kind of connection meetings and like checking in about where something's at, you know, professionally, you know what I mean, whatever. I find those to be, you know, from a, a you know, my personal network of support and getting stuff done, fantastically effective for me. Get up, you know, early, chop it up with somebody that, um, you know, I can, that I know can give me meaningful insights and vice versa. Um, I know that's not for everybody. Some people are like, yo, I don't want to talk early in the morning. Um, I, I kind of dig it. Um, you know, but I think it's, I think it's something too getting an understanding of like behaviorally, man. How do you function? You know, I deal with this with my children all the time. Like, are you, you now? You just did that. Are you sure you're going to actually get done eating that? You know, it's ten thirty, right? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'm totally going to eat it. I'm like, all right. I mean, I suppose so. I guess we'll see in about two hours because I'm gonna still be up, and you're gonna be asleep with the TV on, and it's gonna be half a bowl or something sitting in your lap. It's too late. You know, now maybe you proved me wrong. Like these are the types of things that I think I think I think people being in their homes, those that are fortunate enough to do so, you know, you know, you, you get the wandering eye, I think. I think you mean they're like, man, I, I really when I be in the office, I really be into this this one thing. But now that I'm home, I am not into this at all. Now, the other hand, no, the other side of that is I think a lot of people are learning this week how much how nice it is to leave their house and go do something mm-hmm. be out the house be with other people you know the the incidental stuff that happens when you're with other people you work with you know the jokes the the checking ins the, the 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 helping people process stuff that's happening you know with people there with they're either you know whatever they're pro- i do i work social service so you have a lot of you know people trying to process what they're managing with other people um, you know what I mean? But in, in other spaces, I'm sure, you know, uh, you know, similar dynamics around a project that you're working on and you just got done this long report and you go to the meeting and the person had this old other question that wasn't the first question. You're like, well, we did this long ass report. Let's look at this thing I did. You know what I'm saying? And now you're feeling some kind of way. Like, you want to talk to somebody about that. That must be something you miss if you sitting in the house and you got to like, I got to, I'm going to Zoom you. I'm trying to text you to get a phone call going. So I can tell you about this incidental thing that on my mind, like, you know, right. we, 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 we exist in a communal space. You know what I'm saying? We like hanging out with each other for the most part, even as introverts, it ain't necessarily that I don't like people. I just need time away. Right. Well, that's the thing, you, you know, you got this, you got this thing of people like people but they don't know they like people until they don't have the ability to be around people. And again, I I will say hats off to our public safety folks who they were actually planning. 
that we would only be able to operate with 40% of our staff weeks ago. And I'll be honest, I was kind of like, what, what do y'all think is coming here? That we, <laughs> that we are going to be operating at 40% of our capacity. What could possibly be about to happen? <laughs> well, here, you know, here, I didn't, it, is. Realize, here <laughs> it is. And I guess this is why they, you know, just by their public safety. Um, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I think to to that point, a lot of it is like, okay, yeah, you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're not engaging and you don't know how much your effectiveness is actually based upon your human interaction with other people. And I think we know that in a lot of other worlds, but don't acknowledge it at work. So we acknowledge that people want to go to a bar, want to go. I mean, if you look, even look at like club quarantine, right? You look at the explosion of club quarantine with D nice and, and all the DJs who are like spinning records because people want a collective experience. And then when, even when I see people being like, I'm gonna buy you a drink at the bar. There's the part, the part of me is like, you're not at the bar. You're watching a, uh, somebody spin records. <laughs> you're not at the bar. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'll buy you a drink. I got everybody in VIP, but it's because people's level of connectedness really underscores what's important. But now what I'll say about that is it's connectedness in that way, social trust in that way. But there's also a part of our lack of social trust, which is why people won't stay in the house. Right. Because we have an undergirding of lack of social trust that people will not stay in the house because they will not go for the fact that this can harm other people they care about until someone in their family is harmed. Right. Because there is not a trust in government. There's not a trust in institutions. There's no one that can tell you stay in the house and you listen. Yeah. And that's the bigger part of it. Yeah. yeah. And our society is based upon, frankly, no one being able to tell you and your idea being the idea. And then everyone's trying to go to a wartime idea. And I mean, think about it. The only people who've had to give up something during wartime they are 70 years old and up. And that's in that, and that's if like they were born in 50. They're 80 years old to remember wartime activity. So the vast majority of us just don't even understand what it means to act on behalf of others in a real way. Right? So while we have the social trust in 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 play, we have social trust when it comes to a soccer match, right? We have social trust when it comes to a basketball game. We have social trust when it comes to your neighborhood bar. We don't have social trust for knowing for people we don't know. And that's a really that's a really challenging part of this because the only way you're going to figure this out is a high degree of social trust and social cohesion or authoritarianism. <laughs> and that's for real. And that's why you see in America different forms of where people are even trying to go to resolve this issue because either you have social cohesion and people stay in the house because it's the right thing to do or you tell people to stay in the house and force them not to go to the park. Right. Right. You got to close on like here, the, like you can like the play, like they, uh, um, the parks and rec folks put, uh, like caution tapes on the playground equipment 
after the the governor's order went out because people were basically like stay home, but they were still taking you know, go to the park. You know, people had the kids out and they were playing in the playground. And so part of the order was like, you know, you could go outside and walk or run or whatever, but like you can't like stop in the park and play ball or, you know what I mean, jump on the jungle gym, whatever, whatever. Um, you know what I mean? Because basically that surface, it, it becomes a communicable surface if y'all are yes. on and off of it or whatever, right? And so yeah, they, they take some of them up <laughs> to go like, yo, you can't play on the joint. Like even in the school district was like, because, you know, usually here school district, like the fields and stuff um, outside of like doing an organized game are quarter, sort of considered parks when schools close, right? So you can go run on the track. You could, you know, do sprints or something, you know, whatever on the gra- on the, the turf and all that. Um, but it's like, yo, all those facilities are closed. You cannot be over there doing nothing. You know what I'm saying? Just so people will not go over there and do something. You know what I mean? So, you know, because, uh, you know, it, it, it's easy to not take seriously and it's also hard to fight the like, I mean, how much could it hurt just going and playing a little basketball? Right? Like, I'm just going to play a little ball. You know, go put, get some jumpers up. whoop de whoop I mean, except for me because it make my legs hurt. But, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, I'm just saying, if I was not, if I was in some other way disposed to do so. And I think, um, you know, I think uh, I think what'll be interesting down the line, but with this, is when if someone does like the hate compares the way this was managed in South Korea versus the way it's been managed other places, and people go, well, why did why did South Korea respond, and did people accept you know these things and do this and do that, and they would you know at least in terms of this current player. You know they they smushed the curve right out. You know what I'm saying? Where other people, other places were not so successful. Um, you know, and then yeah, so, yeah. No, I and I would find to say yeah. I think sometimes that's where I, my point about the social cohesion, where it's like, oh, okay, so yeah, we won't go to school, but it's going to be a full court basketball game with 50 people at <laughs> at the court, right? And people sweating. be asymptomatic, sweating and being asymptomatic, all touching the basketball. Yeah. <laughs> Think about how many people in the span of four, four full court basketball games touch a basketball in a certain amount of time. Yeah, man. It's not a sanitary situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah, and, I mean? and so, yeah. And so, you know, I think again, it's like this premise of, Where's the cohesion, but where's the trust in institutions to have someone tells you to stay home, you actually trust it or you fear it, <laughs> right? Because either you trust it or you fear it. And I think a lot of, there's a lot of people, I've heard my people who I think they, they, they fear, they're like, oh man, this is scary. Like, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to get this. I don't want to die. You know what I'm saying? And it's, you know, I'm not sure. I, I guess maybe at least I've, I've talked to more people who I think are more, um, more on the fearful side than the, the than the uh, you know the trust side, or at least the fearful self preservation side. Like, well, I'm gonna keep myself safe. I'm going to house, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily for my fellow neighbor, my fellow citizen, right? Yeah. When you have that level of like concern for your fellow citizen, when someone didn't blow something up or a natural occurrence which is usually when we develop that sense of collective self-efficacy, right? So, yeah, man. All right. So, Whew. 
and the pivot to as we roll down to the head towards wrapping up. It was it's a beautiful viral video. His brother, Dion Broxton, um, who uh, he's in Montana, covering the news. And um, and and uh, you know you can find out, I will share the video if you haven't watched it. It's been it's been quite a joy because he's looking and he's like trying to set up his mic. And then the first thing I think is interesting that people may not put together. <laughs> he's filming that by himself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying like so just the idea people are like oh he's on TV it must be like it's a film crew it's like it's him microphone camera and Montana open lands and, and shit and it's bison buffaloes over there being buffalo and he looks he's like Buff- the buffalo they're getting too close let me oh, no not today let me let me set up my gear you know what I mean and it goes to so I thought so because I think a lot of people will clue into, and I guess I would say as the probably representative between us, who's a little bit more of the forest man. Um, <laughs> yes. Folks would probably Definitely. clue into like the animals and all oh, the animals, dangerous and scared animals while I don't go outside, blah, 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 blah. The thing I started thinking about is, because I, I, I read and come across a fair amount of people who are very critical of journalists and TV media. And as a person that doesn't really watch TV news, I try to get most of my news like by reading and then like, skimming you know, broadcast type channels of things. Um, that's just, yeah, that's my preference. What that man is doing, whatever the remote pit he was about to do, I don't know if it was weather. <laughs> I don't know if it was an update report on the hiking conditions or what. But he's out there by himself, man. It's just him and, <laughs> and, and, and mother, you know, and, and, and mother nature, so to speak. And, and, you know, and he had to make his own decisions. <laughs> like and who's thinking about the Deion Broxtons of the world that got to go out here and and report the information? You know what I'm saying and document. You know what I mean what's going on with a, with a certain site for a certain setting. You know what I'm saying and and I, I think you know there's a levity to his situation of recognizing that was dangerous. Let me relocate, <laughs> right? The buffalo is too close. You know what I'm saying. So he moved down a little bit and got a better range and then you know shot his piece. You know what I'm saying and you know went on about whatever else work he had to do that day. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, maybe reaching back even to a piece we started out our conversation around, like, you know, who's who's covering the local stories about what's happening in some of our communities and how, how close do they feel, how, how safe do they feel to stand and kind of report, so to speak, and really document different situations and report on crimes or report on, you know, the resolution of crimes, which I think is, is definitely important, is is that we don't get enough reporting about the resolution of painful things that happen. Like we get like five people were shot, and then we don't get the like this happened, these people recovered. Here's the other details. Here's something else that was going on. Um, you know, it's like Dion out there trying to make his way in the world. You know, I don't know if Dion. I think I don't think Dion's from Montana originally. I, I'm trying to remember. Clearly, no, I read Dion's not from Montana originally. <laughs> By his accent, I would say, you know, not to say, I know there's sort of some black people from Montana. I was more the way his, his accent did not say Montana native to me. Um, you know, but I bet, you, I bet you there's a very interesting story with how Dion found himself where he was at. You know what I'm saying? And, and Bali is an even more valuable story and how he learned to be efficient and effective in the environment that he has located himself in. Um, so I, it brought a little bit of, you know, you know, joy to my heart, but also the, uh, 
you know, the, the awareness and the wherewithal and the importance of people actually documenting stuff. I mean, I think in our age of the camera, the media, and videos that go viral and stuff, we kind of could take for granted that we're actually getting input in actual news at times. And it's right. also those where we don't, you know, got to peel apart the layers there. So I don't know. You have any thoughts? So, about so just real quickly, man, tenor. because fun is hilarious. And number one, in fact, of like, okay, whatever station it is, and you know, the economics could be what it is, but the idea that like, yeah, you're just gonna go out here and do this by yourself. Going back to our work conversation, yeah. was like, man, you gonna do that to my own camera? Go out here and bro, it's bison. <laughs> hey, listen, he's trying to make us win where he got to be in small markets hey. and then he goes from small markets to big markets, right? right. So he is pilot, he is plying his craft and his trade in the small market in order to, to do his thing. But I got to do what? <laughs> and then it's going to be some bison out here that y'all mess around like going to give me insurance for? I'm out of here, dog. Yo, Whatever. Pack my stuff you, up, man. <laughs> you, can, you can keep that to yourself, dog. <laughs> You know what I mean? I'm out of here. Yeah, I got to um, cut his own tape, too. He probably got to edit it and everything. Listen, man, he's one-man army A song. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hey, the one-man army, man. But then to your second most important point, <laughs> then there's also the point where black folks, because of constantly living in a state of uncertainty in America, always know when it's time to go. <laughs> Sometimes even if it's too early. We'd be like, oh, no, no, it's time to go. Man, it ain't happened yet, man. They ain't even like yet. Nah, nah, nah. No, nah, man. No, I don't like what's going on in here, man. I'm getting out of here before something happens. So we have a, a pre-natural, quote unquote, as people will say, it's all it's natural. It's not pre-natural. A pre-natural sense of like, it's time for me to go. <laughs> Which you saw with my man. Right. You feel like, hey, man, y'all smell that? Yeah, man, I'm out of here, man. <laughs> what are you talking about? Man, I'm out. I'm out. Time to go. You can, you can feel it, you can feel it in the air. Yeah. The second part of your, your your point is we report the problem, going back to the problem and the solution of our second pivot, mm-hmm. we report the problem but never report the solution. So if you report that there was a gun battle, but you never report that somebody was found, or if you report that a child was kidnapped, but never report that they were found home, right? It goes back to if it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. And so you have a premise that it whatever bleeds is the framework for the actual thing of how you perceive that world. So if you keep saying somebody got shot in this corner, you know black people live there. Somebody got shot in this corner, you know brown people live there. Somebody got shot in this corner, you know poor white people live there, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you never say this person got caught because the system and the community came together to find the people who are harming the community. Because then that's resolution, right? Right. That's the resolution that you would need to see to say, okay, no, people people are speaking for themselves and acting in on behalf of themselves, right? But if you never see that, then you've taken efficacy away, mm-hmm. right? You've taken agency away. People are victims, and they're not part of their own solution. So to your point, it reinforces that you're not part of your solution. There is no solution for your problem. And going back to our first conversation, that causes a whole sense of political context when your relationship to see somebody is what you see on the news and what you see in videos or what you see in media to frame who's the problem. So the system ain't the problem, right? The people are the problem. The people don't have the agency to bring about their own resolution, 
right? right. The, the, it ain't nothing wrong with the system. Them people don't want to work to bring about their own change. So I think, uh, you know, shout out to my man for doing what he had to do. <laughs> yeah, he, he had to move out. Also, shout out to him for having to be the one man army of songs. Shout out to old Dirty Bass and shout out to ODB. <laughs> he, he had to be a he had to be a one man army, man. Whew. He had to make a, he had to make a business decision. He said, "I'm out." And I appreciate the National, <laughs> National Forest Service that he did the right thing. <laughs> You're supposed to be closer than like hundred feet, three hundred feet. I think three hundred feet. I think if you close to three hundred feet to a buffalo, you're in the danger zone. Right, because he can run faster than you. So the thing is, he makes jump it at three hundred feet. feet. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, he looked at the article. Said they can jump six feet in the air. So that's my point. So you figure he fifty, he fifty what's names away from you, and you can't run that fast. <laughs> He's bigger than your car. Right. Get out of there, man. Spread out. Give him the space. So, um, word up, word up. So with that. You know, we're kind of close to the the hour. I was gonna close with a segment called, you know, at least this week called "What Did We Learn This Week." You got something you want to share that you learned this week? Oh man, yeah, man, I, I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned a lot this week. I learned a lot about people this week. Um, and, and you know what? What I'll say, what I've learned is when we don't have shared expectations, be prepared for failure. And that's, that's not like a fact, but it's a reality that I've learned this, this week. And I've learned it from what you see with our COVID work here, national COVID work, and then a lot of other situations. Shared platforms for success are necessary for growth and change. Not having a shared platform and a shared expectation of growth is a recipe for failure. A lot of things, and this is going to be a mood between two different things I was thinking about, but I think the, the, the primary thing that I've learned this week is that the vast majority of us, we just don't really know how a lot of stuff works. And, like mm-hmm. and so, our assumptions about people's motivations and why or why not become they, they basically we, we we fill in information for what we don't have with stuff we think could be true because that gives us a sense of comfort and so from you know watching your man's it hadn't even been a whole week of taking a break Kind of going, well, maybe we should start the economy back up. Like, it ain't even been a whole week. Like, we first really said we're going to stop doing stuff, like, the end of last week. We got the Friday of the first whole week, and you're like, well, maybe we should start the economy back up. It's like, wait a minute, we don't even know if it worked yet. Like, settle down. You know what I mean? And there's, you know, a, like, where we are at in terms of, like, trusting the process. Whether we have it for our own designs or because we feel you know, pressure and or fear, fear and pressure maybe being the same thing, that like it really, I think folks learning how more of things work, um, either by experience, hopefully by experience would probably be the best way, um, would really, uh, a positive outcome 
you know, besides the recovery of those that have become ill um, and sick in this time being the preeminent, another positive outcome I, I would like to see is people realizing how important it is just to be a little bit more enmeshed with how things work. You know, even if it's just with your local community, like how does the, who gets, who keeps the lights on with the parks and who takes care of this, you know, at the supermarket, like, you know, how does the supermarket treat its staff? You know what I'm saying? Like how are people able to get around the community transit wise? Um, what is actually the construction of who's, who am I, who do I live with? <laughs> who are these people? You know what I'm saying? Because I think this whole thing would be a little bit easier if there was a little bit more connection between folks. So that's what I got. Hey, I'm with you, man. Thank you again for allowing me to, to, to be on, to be on the show, to, to use this platform to talk about things that might be a little different than what other podcasts talk about, man. But you know, this idea of fine, dealing with yourself, understanding yourself, knowledge yourself, those should be in the opposite order. But, um, you know, is a it's a pleasure to to get on and build with you, my brother. Indeed, well, always appreciative. And with that, I'm I'm gonna do a quick close. I want to say thank you for listening to the Good Brothers. I'm Justice Raji. This is I'm Majestic. I appreciate y'all uh, for listening, and tuning in. Uh, we'll see you next time. Oh, oh real quick, real right, quick, ahead, Messiah. Messiah wanted me to let everyone know that he was in here again, like last time when he shared he was here. So he just <laughs> wanted. <laughs> One love, yeah. love you. <laughs> yeah, so you want everybody know you're here. Bum man. Peace. All right. Peace. Peace. Let me.